I am beginning tonight with uh, a little matter of uh, church polity or business. Uh, We are uh, presenting this weekend two new candidates for elder here at Bethel Church, and uh, their names are Nick Yadrin and Bob Smith. And to remind our congregation of how this works, uh, the church constitution says this, if it is the opinion of the nominee and the elder team that he is suitable for the position, the elder team will make a public announcement of the man's nomination, seeking input from the members of the church body. The congregation will be reminded of the biblical requirements for elders and given 30 days to speak personally with the nominee if they are aware of any disqualifying characteristics. If any matter remains unresolved, the elder nominee or church member should approach the elder team and request that the nominee's name be withdrawn from consideration. And so this is the weekend that we are uh, presenting these two men. We have interviewed them and have gone through a process of examination uh, with them. Uh, We are required to remind you of the qualifications for an elder. So how about if I do that from Titus chapter 1? One of two places where we are given this. Paul writes this. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So there we have uh, the uh, qualifications as given in Scripture. And if you, uh, for these 30 days, if you are aware of something in their life that you feel is a concern or might be disqualifying, uh, our Constitution says go and talk to them. And if it remains unresolved, then bring it to the elder team. And that's how we do it. And then the congregation, the members, will vote an affirmation vote on these two men uh, should both their names uh, remain standing. So uh, please be in prayer about that. My sermon was basically prepared for this weekend, and then Friday happened. And the mass shooting in Newtown, Connecticut And I want to begin with a few comments about that. I spoke with an educator before this service, and she said to me, are you going to say anything about what happened? I am hurting so badly. And no doubt, many, many people are. In a certain way, we all feel horror at what happened, and our prayers go to the families and that whole community. It is ironic, I think, that at least in terms of our teaching uh, series, that this happened the week after we studied this passage from 1 John 1. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. We talked last week about this metaphor that John, the Apostle John, uses. Light and darkness. God is light, which means that he is 
perfect. He is beautiful. He is good. He is morally and intrinsically um, pure. There is no inclination towards anything that is unseemly or wrong, and certainly nothing that is evil. God is magnificently and majestically, beautifully light. And darkness is the absence of all that God is. So darkness is evil. Darkness is wickedness. Darkness is unrighteousness. Darkness is evil. To walk in darkness is to be capable of the most grotesque and horrific moral actions. And what Adam Lanza did Friday was evil and sinful beyond imagination. A whole nation, 300 million people, grappling with an obvious display of evil. And, you know, in the Christmas story, which we are celebrating this month, we have uh, another example of this same kind of thing. Herod, when he found out that uh, the wise men did not come back to him, ordered that every child two years and under in the whole region of Bethlehem should be, should be killed. And the prophecy was this, and it fulfilled the prophecy of Jeremiah 31.15. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And in our country today, you saw it on the news, probably everybody here watched the news. Uh, our whole nation, a nation of, of you know citizens feeling for the families and uh, the loved ones of these children and the adults that died, Rachel's of Newtown weeping. And so we're grappling to find some answer, and it's the same answer, the same question we asked after Columbine, and the same question that we asked after uh, 9-11, and the same question that uh, Europe asked after uh, the Holocaust, and any other obvious example of evil. How do we do that? What do we do? What, what does all this mean? Why did this happen? What does this, what is this all about? And the Bible's answer is the same today as it was after Columbine and after 9-11 and after the Holocaust and after the personal things that we go through where we feel evil pressed against us. The answer is this, John 3. Why do these things happen? Because men love darkness rather than light. And their deeds are evil. And we look into this moment in our nation and we see such twisted and corrupted and, and pathological evil. I mean, who would do something like this? And the answer is that sinners would. And this is why the world needs a Savior. And this is what Jesus himself, in his own words, using the same metaphor of light and darkness, said in Acts 26. To open their eyes. Why did he come? To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Darkness to light. And the story of the gospel is not that Jesus stands in the light and says, here, why don't you all come and join me in the light, but that Jesus stepped into our darkness and into the evil of this world and was himself murdered 
to bring us into the light and now stands in the light on the other side of the resurrection and says, all who believe in me and turn from their sins come out of that wickedness and out of that darkness and be where God is, be where I am, be in a place of light, of purity, of goodness, and of righteousness. And the Bible says that someday Jesus is going to reign. And in that day, there never, ever again will be a day like Friday. No more darkness, no more pain, neither crying again. I think the song goes on to say, praises to the great I am, I will live in the light of the crucified lamb. That may not be quite exactly right, but you get the point. And so we have then in our culture today a very painful reminder of why that little baby was born in Bethlehem and why he came into our darkness. So now I'll get into the rest of the sermon that I was planning on, all right? And uh, we are back in 1 John 1, and our text this weekend is verses 8 through 10, which I will read. The Apostle John writes this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, my outline for the message is as simple as they come, because this text is laid out about as simply as it can be, how not to deal with sin and how to deal with sin. Okay? How not to deal with sin, and then how, how are we to deal with sin in our life? So we begin with how not to deal with sin because John begins with how not to deal with sin. Uh, and I just want to refer back to the first way not to deal with sin, which we saw in verse 5, where he says this, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. So if our claim is, I am, I am a Christian, I am in fellowship with God, and yet my life is lived and oriented towards the things of darkness, John says this, we lie and do not practice the truth. The first way not to deal with sin is to celebrate it, to celebrate it. These were people, and there have been many down through, through the years, who have a view of God's grace and of salvation where they basically say this, we're under grace. We're under the grace of God. Isn't it great that salvation is a gift? We don't earn it. We don't merit it. In fact, our actions, there's, there's nothing between, there's no connection between who I say I am as a Christian and the way that I live. So, because of that, folks, let's go party. Let's have a great time. Let's sow our wild oats, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die, and when we die, we go to heaven anyway. This is known as antinomianism. That's the theological word for it. Not anti-law, but more this. No law. The law doesn't matter. God's moral commands, they don't matter. We don't need to worry about those things. So let's just celebrate our sin. Let's celebrate that God forgives us anyway. Now to this, John says, that's a lie. And those who practice it are liars. And why are they liars? Because there is a massive Difference between what they claim to be true, I am in fellowship with the God who is light, and the orientation of my life. And we talked last night 
or last, last uh, weekend that this doesn't mean that anybody's perfect, which I'm going to get to in a moment, but it does mean that there is transformation that genuine salvation produces in the heart of somebody who has been born again of the Spirit. And it's, it's a change in which we sin every day, but there's a, there's a change. And that's one of the indications of a genuine follower of Jesus. So when it comes to sin then for Christians in the church, we, we can't celebrate it because God doesn't celebrate sin. He never, he's never glad with sin. He never, he never, uh, sanctions it. He grieves over it. He punishes it. He sent Jesus here because of it. So there's no celebration of sin and no sanctioning of it. We did that last week, so we'll skip past that one. That was just a quick review. The second way not to deal with sin, he deals with in both verse 8 and verse 10. And that is to deny it. Okay? Deny it. Look again at the verse. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now look at verse 10. It's almost the same. If we say we have not sinned, we make him, this is God, a liar and his word is not in us. So in verse 8... Uh, we are self-deceived, and the truth isn't in us. And in verse 9, we make God a liar, and his word is not in us. They, are, they wrestle with what the difference between those two is. It's so small, as nobody really knows. He's basically repeating himself. And the main point that he's making is that when it comes to sin, Christians should not sort of act like, hey, you know what, I have reached a point where I no longer do that, and to deny it. Now, this doesn't mean that they would say, this group, by the way, a reminder, he's writing against a group that had a, some teachers, and they gathered together, and they left the church. They said, John, we don't like what you think. We're going to go off and do it this way. He's answering some of the claims that these people made. And so apparently there were people that were actually saying that, and they were not saying, by the way, I have never sinned in my life. Nobody would really probably make that claim. What they are saying was that once I became a Christian, now I have achieved a higher level of spirituality and I've come to a place now where I actually, I don't sin, ever. Now one commentator said, one reason it says he deceives himself uh, is that he can't deceive anybody else with the claim, especially uh, cue up his wife, you know, in that moment right there. So we see then that they were making a claim of what some branches of Christianity down through history, although I don't know of many anymore that, that, that necessarily hold to this, it was known as perfectionism. Where I can, in my spiritual growth, I can come to a place where I am so holy, I am so sanctified, I don't sin anymore. Look at me, I don't sin anymore. John says the claim to do that is a sin. You are deceiving yourself and you're calling God a liar. It is itself a sin. Many of you know one of my heroes is uh, Pastor Charles Spurgeon. And the story is told about Spurgeon that uh, one day he met a guy who made that very claim, who said that he had got to a point where he no longer sins. And so Spurgeon invited him to his house for dinner. And over the course of dinner, Spurgeon took up his a glass of water and he threw it in the face of the man. The man stood up and verbally, like assaulted Spurgeon for doing it. And Spurgeon's response was this, Ah, you see, the old man within you is not dead. 
He simply fainted and could be revived with a glass of water. (laughs) Now, what is behind the claim, or at least the desire, of the natural man to say that I have not sinned? It's not really so much that I have not sinned that man wants. What does he really want? He wants to say, I have no responsibility for my actions, right? I've come to a point now or in my life, I am not responsible for what I do. And in our modern world, we see this all the time. We see it in the Bible. Adam and Eve hid in the bushes, right? God comes to him and says, Adam, what have you done? The woman that you gave it to me, it's her fault. And the woman says, it's not my fault. It's the serpent. It's Satan's fault. And Satan's over there going, I don't know, maybe it is my fault, I'm not sure. But you see how the blame shifting uh, uh, happens there. David and Bathsheba, for a year, David, he says in Psalm 51, his bones groaned within him as he sought to do something with the guilt that he felt and the accountability that he had. The natural man has to do something with, with his sin. Edgar Allan Poe, and I'm digging deep for some of you I know, it's been a long time. Edgar Allan Poe, you might remember reading his poem, The Telltale Heart. Uh, not poem, it's actually a short story in which he tells the story of a man who felt incredible guilt for something that he had done. And he, his, the, his, the, he, he hears a heart beating so loudly, he thinks it's the victim that he had done the crime against. And it beats, beats louder and louder and louder until in a, in a, he goes mad and he confesses uh, to the crime. And the point of Edgar Allan Poe's telltale heart is that it was his own heart beating within him that he heard. The conscience of the man beating against him, saying, you are guilty. And sinners, we all have that kind of heart beating inside of us, telling us we are guilty. And we feel shame from that. We feel guilt from that. And we look for something to do with it. What do we do? Where do we go? How do we cover it up? And our culture, I think, is very good at giving plausible uh, reasons for why we do what we do. So that if you notice, we live in a day of victims. The victim mentality. I'm not responsible for the kind of person that I am. It's my parents' fault. I wasn't loved. I wasn't hugged. Nobody said nice things to me. Or it's a syndrome or a disease. I'll put a label on it. And if I can put a label on it, now I am what? I'm, I'm not accountable for it, right? It was passed on to me through my genes. I'm not a sinner. I'm a victim. I'm not responsible for what I do. Or we call sins biological needs. Or it's the government's fault. Or it's this failed educational system. Or really anything can be, if somebody's looking for a reason, they can find a reason for why they do what they do. Desperate to blame somebody else. One commentator says this, Modern fallacies claim that sin is a disease or a weakness, something due to heredity or environment, necessity or the like. People come to regard sin as their fate, not their fault. Such people deceive themselves. Or as another man wrote, The deadliest sin is the consciousness consciousness of no sin. 
If I am without sin, and if, if I am not accountable for sin or responsible for what I have done, then why did Jesus come? What's the point if I can be free of sin? And the Bible says that there is no man that is free of sin. All are sinners and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. We are all unrighteous. There is none righteous, no, not one. The story of the Bible is not Jesus dying for good people who needed some inspiration, but Jesus dying for sinners who walk in darkness rather than light. And we are responsible to a holy God for what we do, what we don't do that we should do, the thoughts and the inclinations of our hearts, and even the good things that we do for wrong reasons are all sins in the eyes of God that we are responsible for and stand before a holy God rightfully judged as sinners and in the, in the, in the plan of God rightly condemned for eternity. Now, if we look back to verse 7, we see that to walk in the light is not to become less aware of sin in your life. It is to become more aware of sin in your life. And if I may play with this analogy a little bit, when I become a Christian, I, ste- I go from darkness into light. I probably can find that. Let me, maybe I can illustrate it this way. It's a little darker over here, right? When I become a Christian, I leave the darkness And I walk into the light. But my understanding of who God is, is dim. I'm just learning about who he is. I'm just kind of understanding the depth of of my own sin. I'm, I'm, I'm a new Christian, right? But as I grow as a Christian, and as I come to understand God's word, and as I get around godly people, and as I look at the example of Jesus, and I see the way that he lived, and I realize the moral line that is the moral will of God, as I grow as a Christian, I increasingly have the light of revelation. I don't say I have less sin. I come to realize that I have more sin. It's kind of like... Uh, if you ever drywall and you, you're like, oh, the wall looks perfect. Or you paint, you paint. You paint your wall and you're like, oh, we got it all. And then you bring the light in and what do you see everywhere? Split places that you missed. And that's the way it is as a Christian. So much so that probably the godliest man, the godliest Christian ever, the Apostle Paul, writes inspired by the Holy Spirit in 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a trustworthy saying, worthy of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. The greatest Christian viewed himself as the worst sinner. Why? Because Paul had a greater understanding of the holiness and the greatness of God and the majesty of his morality And the more light that he had for who God is, the more he saw the depth of his own sin, leading him to say in Romans, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Don't come along and say, I haven't sinned, or I'm not accountable for my sin. I'm so godly that I am unaware of any sin in my life. That is not godliness. That is deception, John says. Don't deal with your sin by saying, I don't have any. What sin are you talking about? Confession of sin. Ha! I can't even think of anything when I go to confess. I can't think of anything I've done wrong. Could somebody help me? We'll be glad to help you. 
Not being aware of your sin is itself a sin. So start right there. When we are in the light of God's purity, we see more sin, not less. And we certainly do not deny its presence or our responsibility for it. So what are we to do with sin as a Christian? We don't celebrate it. We don't deny it. What do we do? And that is verse 9. One of the most beloved verses in all of the Bible tells us what are we to do with sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What do we do with our sin? We confess it. And by confessing it, we own it. We own it. This is my sin. In fact, that word confess is an important word to understand what he's saying here. It literally means this, to say the same word as or to agree with. Now, when I confess a sin to God, how am I saying the same word or agreeing with? Who am I agreeing with in my confession? Am I agreeing with the person who pointed it out to me? Perhaps, but that's not what it's getting at. I am agreeing with God's assessment of it. I am owning it and I am owning up to it. And I am saying before God, God, what I did or what I did not do that I should have or the hard inclination that I had in doing what I should have was sin. It was pride. It was selfishness. It is sin. I own it. I don't run from it. I don't explain it away. It's mine. I say the same word as you over it. Confess it. Confess it. And we see then in this how diametrically opposite of the false teachers and that uh, cessationist group that left, John is saying the opposite of what they were telling their people. Hey, have a good time. Celebrate your sin. It's fine. You're under grace. You don't have any sin in your life? We agree with you. Neither do we. We're good with God. I got no sin. I'm not responsible. John says, not only do you have sin, but you must acknowledge it before God and agree with his assessment of it that it is wicked and it is wrong. And the glorious thing is that God can't celebrate it and God can't deny it, but the God of heaven can forgive it. And by the way, of those three choices, which would you prefer? I go with forgive myself. Our God can forgive it. And notice that this forgiveness is conditioned upon the confession of the sinner to doing it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. And what I take that to mean is, is this, because you may come up to me afterwards and say, if I don't confess a sin, does that mean I step into eternity bearing the responsibility for it? I would say the answer to that legally is no. Justification is a legal declaration by God that we are righteous forever in the, in the eyes of God. So legally, no. But relationally, yes. It is not God is our judge, but God is our heavenly father. Where our sinful actions grieve him and grieve the Holy Spirit and impede a full fellowship with God which a Christian doesn't want to have anything impeding a full fellowship with God. Why? Because I love him. He's my heavenly father. And I want, all, I want all the light. I want all the light 
I want full fellowship with him. Own it. Sin is not a syndrome. It is not someone else's fault. It's not because of a family member. It's not because of my genes. It is because I am a sinner. Why do we sin? We sin because we're sinners. Are we good with that here? And all the sinners said. Some of you were slow. Maybe you're still back in verse 8. I came in here thinking I was a pretty good person. No, we're all sinners. And when I say the same thing as God over my sin, I'm not celebrating it. I'm grieving over it. I'm sorrowful over it. In my heart, I wish I hadn't done it. Or the thing I should have done, I wish I would have done. I don't ask for forgiveness anticipating the next salacious opportunity I have to do it again. Thinking to myself, I'll just ask for forgiveness. I remember I got that call from a, I got a call from a man some years ago who told me that he was about to go and do a particular sin. I think he was going to sleep, on, sleep around on his wife. And he said, it's okay. I'm just planning on asking God to forgive me when I'm done. Is that somebody who's actually tasted of the grace of God? Not according to Paul. I don't think so. To plan on, to presume upon the forgiveness of God. That's not sorrow. That's not agreeing. That's not agreeing with God, is it? That's saying words, but my heart is still delighting in the sin and wanting more of it. That's not what we're talking about. Now, at the end of this message, I'm going to give you a sample confession of sin. Okay, so we'll get to that. But what we haven't seen yet is how this confession produces freedom from our guilt and shame, which is what sinners desperately want. When I have, when I feel responsible for my sin and I feel guilt for what I have uh, done, I desperately want to be free of the guilt. And in big and small ways, we have that. I know sometimes in the big ways, I've seen that as a pastor here, somebody does a a big sin. I don't believe in that category, but you know what I mean? Something that even they think, man, this is, I must, this is really bad what I have done. We have people come out of the woodwork looking for freedom from their guilt. And I don't know if it's because of a background in uh, Catholicism or something. Sometimes they think if I confess it to a pastor, I must be okay, right? I got to tell you what I did. Okay, I feel better now. I don't have any ability to forgive sins. Telling me doesn't do anything. Who do we need to talk to about our sins? We need to talk to God about our sins. And how is God, as a holy God, able to remove our guilt for our sin? That is what the verse explains. Notice what it says. If we confess our sins, there's the condition, that's our responsibility. He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We'll stop there. Faithful and just. Like, what is the connection between me wanting to get rid of my guilt and shame and the faithfulness and the justice of God? Well, both of these are character qualities of God. And did you know, I got great news for sinners here tonight, which I think is most of us, God has promised to forgive sins. Did you know that? God has bound himself to his own word. 
that he will be a God who forgives sins. And it's all over in the Bible. Here's a clear example of it. Jeremiah 31, 34. This is that famous Jeremiah passage dealing with the new covenant, the prophecy of the new covenant that Jesus came and established. It says this, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Well, how is this going to be accomplished? For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. God is describing here how he is going to relate to us in the new covenant. Inaugurated by Jesus, his work on the cross, and his resurrection, we are now in this new covenant. And within the new covenant, a covenant is a promise, isn't it? When you get married, it's a covenant. You're making promises to each other. God married sinners under the new covenant. And in the new covenant, he said, I will forgive you. I will forgive you. I promise. Now, John draws on that promise of God and the character of God. And he says, God is faithful. What does that mean? God is faithful to the promise that he made. He will never lie. Do you get that? He will never lie. If God ever doesn't forgive a sin that is confessed to him under the blood of Jesus, he will in that moment cease to be God. Why? Because he is a liar. If he doesn't do what he promised, God is a liar. And John says, God is never a liar. He's the opposite of that. He is faithful. He doesn't lie. He is always true to his word. And so I'm here to tell you tonight, the, the things in your life, maybe, maybe I, most of us probably think of a thing or a few things that we, to this day, we struggle whether or not God has actually forgiven us. And whenever we talk about sin, this is the thing that comes to my mind. What do you, how do you find hope that even that thing is something that God has forgiven. It is grounded in the character of God. Can you trust him? And will he do what he said that he will do? John says he always will. He is faithful. Our God is faithful. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. As the hymn says. So at issue then is God's integrity. He is faithful. But can God just forgive? And this gets now into the more of the inner workings of redemption. Can God just say, I forgive? Sure, I forgive. Oh yeah, I forgive. And that, and that, and that, and that times a million. You're all good. In a vacuum. Can he just do that? And the Bible says, no, he cannot. And the reason that he cannot is that he is holy. And his justice requires that every sin, which is a moral violation of the greatness, the character of God, every sin must be punished. There is a penalty that must be paid. So God, in order to forgive sins... His justice requires the payment be made. So how can God accomplish that? We clearly cannot do that. We have no chips. We have no moral equity 
to offer to God. We, our hearts are desperately wicked. Uh, who can know it? So where do we go? How do we find a place where that payment can be made? And the answer to that, we see John highlighting in verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So the answer then is that a just and holy God makes the moral payment that our sins require through the death of his son Jesus on the cross. A payment of infinite moral value because he is the infinite son of God. And by doing that and making that payment, now a holy and righteous God can hear the confession of the sinner, remind his heart of the promise that he made, access the righteous equity of the very blood of Jesus, and can say to the sinner, I forgive your sins, I remember them no more, Though they are as scarlet, they are now white as snow. Done. And the sinner walks away free of responsibility and free of guilt and shame. And by that, God cleanses us. Remember that word cleanse is in the continuous action. He continuously cleans and clears our conscience from the sins that even as Christians, we regularly do every day. We don't deny sin. We don't celebrate it. We own it. And we claim the blood of Jesus, which wipes our conscience clean, as Hebrews says, and allows us to stay in the light and to stay in fellowship with the holy God. Isn't it marvelous what God has done? And the sinner said, Amen. Truly, only God could do it. Only God could do it. So that remarkably, God is both the, is both just and the justifier, as Paul says in Romans 3. It was his, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, he is perfectly just and holy, and he is also the justifier of the sinner. He makes the payment himself to make us holy. And the result of this forgiveness then is, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And there's even a jewel of truth in this. Here is the completeness of what God has done. You know, it's one thing to say, uh, I forgive you for what you did. It's another thing to say, and I'm going to clean up the mess of what you did. If I could draw a simple analogy, imagine a a, a son who in defiance pours out uh, grape juice on the living room white carpet. Nah, 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 you know. Now, is, is, is that wrong? The son could say, I don't see any sign here saying I can't pour grape juice on the white carpet. I don't know that I'm violating any rules of the house. Of course it's wrong. In attitude and in action, it is wrong. Now that dad, if the boy's heart changes, can that dad forgive the boy for what he's done? Dads do it every day. (laughs) Sure they can. Sure he can. But it's one thing to say, son, I forgive you. It's another thing to get out the carpet cleaning and to work on it and to call the carpet cleaner 
and pay a couple hundred bucks for him to come in and to clean the carpet, or, or worse yet, pay to replace the carpet in the whole thing so that it looks like it did prior to what happened. That's a whole other thing, isn't it? And I don't know if that's a good illustration or not, but it kind of gets to the point of what God does here is that he not only forgives us for the offense and says, okay, we're good. He takes it another step and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He cleans up the moral mess within us so that in terms of our relationship, it is as if we had not sinned. That's how complete his forgiveness is. It's gone. It's not there anymore. He doesn't think about it anymore. And how does he do that? Again, verse 7, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Jesus is the moral carpet cleaner, if you want to say it that way, that cleans up the things that we do, and it's as if we didn't do it in the first place. Which I have to think is a real encouragement here in the room as we think about the things, big things perhaps, that mostly come to our mind, that we say, oh, I just so wish. That is such a regret. I've asked God a thousand times to forgive me, and yet it still comes to my heart and mind. I feel guilty over it. I, when we take communion, sometimes I think about that thing. Who am I to be taking communion? I still, I did that. I can't get over it. I can't get over what I did. Here's what I want to tell you. God's not a liar. He promises. He promises. If we, if we confess He forgives us. And in his eyes, that thing is cleaned off the list. And he doesn't hold it against us anymore. And we stay in the light then. And there are many Christians, I think, who fail to appropriate that truth to the guilt and shame that they feel for things that they have rightly confessed to God and have sought his forgiveness. And I want you to be free of that, friend. You are free. You are forgiven. In the eyes of God, it's not there anymore. And he calls us then to walk in the light fully. Not as second-class citizens and not with our heads bowed in shame, ongoing shame. I did it. I can't believe I did it. So then what is it left for us to do is to receive it. Receive his forgiveness. And this can be, so, this can be one of the hardest things for people to do especially if you're a perfectionistic type. Perfectionistic types are like, I can't believe I did it. God's forgiven me, but I can't believe that I did it. And we'll self-flagellate for a while, right? I know, God, you've forgiven me, but for the next three months, I'm not watching TV to punish myself for what I allowed myself to watch, which maybe is actually not a bad idea for any number of reasons. But the point that I'm making is, is that Jesus' payment was enough. It was sufficient. We receive this promise also by faith. And friend, if God can forgive all the sins that you did prior to your moment of salvation, when you were his enemy, don't you think as his son, he can come around to forgiving you for the things that you do as you walk in the Christian life? And that wasn't in my notes, and that was really good. And somebody write that down and tell it to me afterwards. That is a wonderful truth. I just want to think about a second. It's kind of the point of Romans 8.32. Which right now I'm trying to quote. If God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? The logic of that is if God would do what he did while we were apart from him, 
And what did he do? He gave us his son. Now as his children, why would we question his goodness and his ability and his promise to give us everything else that we need? And if God forgave us all the junk while we were walking in darkness, how much more able is he to forgive us while we walk in the light? That was worth the price of admission right there. That is a wonderful truth. Brings tears to my eyes to think about that. Think of the majesty of God in that. This is his love for us. He's going to get in chapter 3. He's going to say, Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us that we would be called children of God. He is our heavenly Father. And he wants that fellowship with us and makes provision for the things that get in the way of that fellowship to be wiped clean. We are simply to receive, to receive it. And this is how we walk in the light. Never perfect, never perfect, never perfect. We don't deny it. Never celebrating it, owning it and confessing it and then receiving from God forgiveness. Now I'd like to conclude by giving you a sample prayer of confession. Because you might be like, well, I'm unaccustomed to doing this. I would encourage you to confess your sins every day. Well, Steve, why would you say that? Because that's the example that Jesus gave in his, in his example of prayer, right? Uh, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts or trespasses as we also forgive those who trespass against us. The regular routine of cleansing the heart from the things that the sin that so easily besets us, Hebrews 12. So make confession as you go to God in a daily prayer, which I would say every Christian should pray to God every day. Make a time of searching your heart and confession a part of it. I oftentimes, when I, when I do this, I will pray, God, bring to my mind through your spirit. You know, one of the roles of the spirit is illumination and conviction. Bring to my mind anything that is impeding a right relationship with you. Because we sin every day, don't we? And we don't know all the times that we sin. And we don't, certainly don't confess every time that we sin. But I don't want to have any known sin that I'm kind of hiding from God as if I could anyway. So confession. Here is a sample prayer. I'm going to read it. And then I'm going to have us all read it together to get into the groove. Dear God, I am a sinner in need of your grace and forgiveness. As you know, I blank. I regret blank and confess it to you as sin. I ask you to forgive me and thank you that Jesus died for this. Thank you for being a faithful and just God. Please cleanse me from this sin and any future desire to do it again. Can we say that together? Everyone now? Here we go. Dear God, I am a sinner in need of your grace and forgiveness. As you know, I blank. I regret blank and confess it to you as sin. I ask you to forgive me 
and thank you that Jesus died for this. Thank you for being a faithful and just God. Please cleanse me from this sin and any future desire to do it again. And may God purify his church that we might walk in the light in full fellowship with a heavenly father who loves us and gave his son for us. Amen. Let's stand together for prayer. Let's stand. Father, we come to you as sinners. We acknowledge that. We acknowledge that we all, the t- all too often try to rationalize our sin, explain it away, blame it on somebody else, ignore it, hope it goes away. And yet, Lord, we know that in terms of our relationship with you as a heavenly Father, that these are all things that you desire to cleanse us from, that we might experience the joy of full fellowship with our Creator. Lord, I pray that you would create in us uh, a desire to live in the fullness of purity and holiness. Forgive us for our trespasses, as we also forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And we do pray, Lord, that as you purify our church and individually our hearts in a daily walk with you, that as that prayer ends, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, we pray to that end that we might be children of the light, faithful sons and daughters of our heavenly Father. To you be all the glory. Amen. Amen. Amen.